In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. For he shall give his angels charge over you, to keep you in all your ways. They shall bear you in their hands, that you hurt not your foot against a stone. When I hear those lines from Psalm 91, I think of bedtime, a common refrain in my mother's prayers over us before bed was an appeal to precisely these verses, that God would give his angels charge over us to keep us and protect us. When saying goodnight to my own children, we say an old Compline prayer together that likewise alludes to Psalm 91. From evil dreams defend our sight, we pray, from fears and terrors of the night. You can hear the echoes of verse 5 in that line, that those who take refuge in God shall not be afraid of any terror by night. We go on to ask that God would tread underfoot our deadly foe, that we no sinful thought may know. Here the reference is obviously to Genesis 3, but again to Psalm 91 as well, where we read this morning, you shall tread upon the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you shall trample under your feet. It is no surprise that, psalm nine, psalm, that this psalm has become a regular prayer on the lips of all those who face the long night, or anything frightening for that matter. We are invited to take shelter, to know that we are defended, that nothing we fear shall harm us, because God himself is watching over us and will defend us. In fact, it has been such a source of comfort that some rabbis have dubbed it an amulet psalm, a prayer repeated to ward off danger and ensure protection. There's even evidence that both Christians and Jews in the ancient world copied portions of this psalm, specifically those verses about the angels, and put them in amulets to be worn as protection. Now, if that makes you a bit uncomfortable, I'd say your instincts are sound. Prayers are not incantations. God is a person, not a magical force to be manipulated by saying the right words. But can't we all appreciate how you might get there? Haven't we all clung to some prayer or other, maybe even this one, like an amulet? And we certainly have to recognize that it is not wrong to trust the picture of God we find in those prayers, or the promises made on his behalf by them. Indeed, we probably cling to those verses because we have grasped the truth in them, and it has carried us through many dark nights. But we must also be aware that it is possible to cling to something too tightly. It is possible to hold a truth in such a way that it no longer leads us into the truth. This, I think, is what we learn from St. Luke's account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. It is commonly observed that Jesus rebuffs each of the devil's temptations by quoting scripture. When the devil tempts him to turn a stone into a loaf of bread, he responds by citing Deuteronomy 8.2. One does not live by bread alone. When the devil tempts him with power by offering the kingdoms of the world in exchange for worship, he responds with Deuteronomy 6.13. Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. 
Finally, when the devil tempts Jesus to prove himself by leaping from the pinnacle of the temple, he responds with Deuteronomy 6.16, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, at first glance, there doesn't seem to be much to this. Given Jesus' command of the scriptures, these temptations seem to be all too easily shot down, and we might be left wondering how the devil ever thought he'd get Jesus to take the bait. But the devil, as they say, is in the details. And on closer inspection, we find that there is a lot more nuance in the tempter's art than we may at first recognize. Now, there is a lot we could explore here. For instance, we could think about how the devil escalates an appeal to physical appetite with the bread, to the psychological desire for power and fame with earthly kingdoms, and finally to the spiritual desire to know and prove that we are loved and protected by God with the leap of faith from the heights of the temple. Or we could examine how the devil begins each of his temptations with the same premise, if you are the son of God. And we might observe that the Greek phrase being translated here could just as easily read, since you are the son of God. So the devil might not be calling Jesus' identity into question so much as he is leading with it, presupposing it, in fact. We could reflect on how the devil starts with a truth we can all agree with in order to get us to make a false move on the basis of it. But I want to draw our attention to something else. It's a very subtle and I think deliberate use of vocabulary to clue us into an important aspect of the devil's temptation that echoes what we just observed about Psalm 91. That we must sometimes be careful about how we hold on to the truth, lest it become its opposite in our hands. When Jesus responds to the first two temptations, he prefaces his quotations of scripture with the same phrase, it is written. But the third time, he chooses a different verb, it is said. So the question is, why the change? And maybe you're asking, does it really matter? He's still appealing to scripture, isn't he? Well, let's take another look at how the devil presents the third temptation. If or since you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. It is written, says the devil. You see, in this last temptation, the devil is trying to beat Jesus at his own game. Jesus has been successfully fending him off by quoting scripture, so the devil decides to try it himself. And he replicates Jesus' approach word for word, leading with the very same preface, it is written. Notice also which scripture the devil quotes. It's Psalm 91. And it's the very verses that St. Luke's contemporaries might have been wearing as amulets around their necks to assure themselves of God's favor and protection. This is not an easy temptation to say no to. It comes as a sound appeal to what scripture does seem to promise God will do for those who put their trust in him. And it would certainly seem to validate the truth of Jesus' identity as the Son of God. But Jesus knows that the word of God is not something to be clutched or clung to, as though it could be deployed at will 
to ensure some outcome. That would be to abuse the gift of God's self-disclosure as a means of achieving our own ends. That would be, in its own way, to put God to the test, to try the goodwill of the giver by misusing the gift. Moreover, Jesus knows Psalm 91 isn't going to play out in a straightforward way for him. He knows that he'll be back here again, being asked to put his life on the line. But this time, it'll be God asking, and the temple will be his body nailed to a cross. No angels will come to save him. He will die. To be sure, God will make good on the promises of preservation made in Psalm 91. But he will do it in a way that no one anticipated. He will do it through the resurrection of the dead. So when Jesus responds to this third temptation, he alters his approach. He shifts his language to signal that he is not playing the game the devil thinks he is. In citing scripture, he is not clutching an amulet or muttering a spell or even doubling down on a venerable and long accepted interpretive tradition. He is listening for the word of God and letting it speak truth into his situation. If the devil is now co-opting his approach to try and make a trap of scripture, he will let it go. He will still make his appeal to scripture, but he will let go of the language that the devil has now deployed to ensnare him. We must always seek the truth, but we must be careful lest how we handle it cause us to lose our grip or to keep us from ever really grasping it at all. We must listen for the word of God speaking into our situation. And we must be vigilant, lest what we think we've already heard from God keep us from hearing what he is saying now. This theme crops up again in our reading from St. Paul's epistle to the Romans. We find Paul in chapter 10 arguing for a righteousness that comes from faith as opposed to the righteousness his Jewish brothers and sisters were trying to achieve, what he calls the righteousness that comes from the law. While his brethren cling to what Moses says about the law in Leviticus 18.5, that the person who does these things will live by them, Paul appeals to what Moses says to the people in his parting address to them in Deuteronomy 30. The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. Now, this was a very important passage for the Jewish imagination in the first century. In Deuteronomy 29, the chapter before, Moses tells the people what will happen to them if they turn away from the Lord their God. They will be cursed, uprooted from the land they are being given, and sent into exile. He then goes on to tell them, in the beginning of chapter 30, that the curses will in fact come. They will turn away and be cast out of the land. But if they return to God from among the nations where they have been driven, he will restore and bless them again. The first century Jews were looking for that restoration. They had been back to the land from exile for hundreds of years. The temple in Jerusalem had been rebuilt, but they were still oppressed under foreign dominion. When would the promise of Deuteronomy 30 come to fruition? 
Many of Paul's contemporaries were so focused on fidelity to the law of Moses, to keeping the law where their ancestors had failed to do so, that they could not see how God had, in fact, come near to them to restore them and the whole world in Jesus Christ. In clinging so tightly to the law, they could not now see that Christ is the end of the law, as Paul says in verse 4. He is the goal of the law, where it was all headed all along, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Once again, there is a way to hold the truth that keeps us from grasping the truth. In his famously enigmatic commentary on the Epistle to the Romans, Swiss theologian Karl Barth plays into the anticipation that this promise from Deuteronomy stirs up into its hearers. The word is near you. He writes, wherever we cast our eye, the dynamite is prepared and ready to explode. But then he muses, what if there is no explosion? Or if something less final takes place? He goes on then to ask a provocative question. Shall we never permit our hands to be empty that we may grasp what only empty hands can grasp? His point is this, as long as we are clinging to our preconceived notions, our expectations for what the truth is or what it will look like, how it will sound, we may be unable to grasp the truth when it actually presents itself because our hands are already full. So maybe it would be wise to learn how to empty our hands and then to let them remain empty for a time. Maybe we ought to be prepared to loosen our particular hold on the truth so that we are free to hear it and grasp it when it is spoken into our situation. We have just embarked on the season of Lent. This is a time of letting go. We loosen our grip and empty our hands of the goods of this world so that we can open ourselves to the word of God, that he might speak transformative truth into our lives. We recognize that the many good things that bless us and give us pleasure in this life often become attachments that distract us or prevent us from seeing the brokenness in our own lives and in the lives of our neighbors throughout the world around us. In Lent, we make a concerted effort to give up these attachments for a season so we can see that brokenness and respond to it by repenting of our sins and showing mercy to others in need. And so we let go of meat or sweets or social media or any of our favorite pastimes and we pray for the grace to resist the ever-present temptation to pick them right back up again. We do this to grow in the discipline of loosening our grip on whatever we are clinging to, so we can follow Christ into the desert and wait empty-handed on the word of God. But I would encourage us to look further than the usual pleasures and creature comforts this Lent Ask yourself, what else am I holding on to, gripping, perhaps, a little too tightly? What stories do you tell yourself about who you are, or what you've done, or what you believe you have to do? What guilt, or shame, or fear 
or anger is held so tightly in your fist that it has begun to define who you are, how you see the world. Maybe you're clinging to a story that was once true, but isn't any longer. Maybe you're holding on to a good of the past or grasping at an anticipated future good, but your back is turned to the present, the good that is now. At All Souls, we are in a time of transition. We are moving forward, but we have mixed feelings about that. There is much to celebrate about who we have been as a community, and many of us are worried that we will lose that as we transition into the community we will be under new leadership. Many of us feel a lot of anxiety about what that new community will look like. Will it be a safe community? Will we have learned from the trauma we suffered collectively and individually through the hardship of the last two years? Will it be a community that I still recognize as my own? Will we worship in the same way? Will we be able to minister to our children as they grow up here? Will our new rector care for us and lead us well? Perhaps this Lent we could let go here too. I'm not suggesting we try to will our feelings away or pretend that they don't exist. But what if we permit our hands to be empty for a season? What if we loosen our grip just enough to set everything down for a while so we can sit in the desert and listen? The one we have followed into the desert is the same word who is near to us. Even if the worst of our fears come true, he will be there still. What is he saying? Let us open our hands and our ears and our hearts so we can receive from him even now. Amen. <laughs>